0: crowd but <laughs> but they asked us to speak on the microphone because they're recording the sessions so that's the only reason why I'm going to speak on the microphone and uh, maybe ask you also to sit closer so when we start having a conversation or you ask questions that we can all speak on the microphone I think is better. Right, welcome to our session, Shall We Start an Afrocentric Museum Resistance Movement? <laughs> uh, I am going to uh, give the five initial minutes for us to introduce ourselves and our institutions and who we're representing here. Uh, then we're going to have two brief presentations uh, about our uh, experiences and our the institutions we're representing and then we're going to open for Uh, conversation an informal conversation about our experiences and how we can learn from each other and and maybe start a movement. So um, my name is gege Lemie Lemmy-Joseph. I uh, have kind of two lives that are very intertwined. (laughs) On one life, half of my time I work for the International Coalition of uh, Sites of Conscience. I manage the our regions in Latin America, the Caribbean and Africa and I am based in South Africa. I have lived in South Africa for 15 years. I am originally from Brazil, so I have worked in a lot of, lot of the, the new museum projects in South Africa that emerged after the 1994 end of apartheid. And I've also have worked extensively in Brazil, especially over the last five to six years, uh, in new projects coming to discuss the Afro-Brazilian uh, heritage and stories. So, today I'm going to be presenting uh, one of the experiences that I've, I'm going through in Brazil. It's, uh, it's an initiative that is still, it already exists as a pilot project, but it's in planning, so it's at a very interesting stage for us to discuss and open to you guys the perils of, of the journey.
1: Hi, my name is Caitlin Blue, and I worked at the Niagara Falls Underground Railroad Heritage Center for about a year and seven months, but now I'm back in school getting my graduate degree in history, focusing on the African diaspora and early modern Europe. And so I wanted to, you know, come and help and do this one last prize in education with my
2: job, so. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Allie Spunger. Um, I'm the director of the Underground Railroad Heritage Center, so I uh, work and work with uh, Caitlin Blue. Um, Caitlin uh, joined on with us as we were opening the museum last year, so we'll be talking about that a little bit in our presentation. We're a brand new museum. Uh, We opened May of 2018. Um, after the museum had been in the works for um, over a decade in the planning process. Um, So my role at the museum right now, I'm the interim director. Um, I started uh, out it was really the project manager to kind of help build the project, uh, and then have come on now to um, kind of uh, manage the operations for the time being uh, as we go through a transition, uh, which I'll be talking about a little bit as well. Um, But our museum uh, is situated right um, on the Canadian border, uh, but in the US side of Niagara Falls. Um, It's in a community uh, that's outside of the tourist district, it's in a local black community, which is really important to telling these stories because they're also where these stories happened um, on the Underground Railroad. So we take an approach that we're focusing on uh, the stories of the individuals uh, who were part of the Underground Railroad, the self-agency, which we'll talk a little bit about. Through this work, uh, we also work for a larger organization as well called the Niagara Falls um, National Heritage Area, um, one of 52 in the United States um, that interprets uh, and protects and uh, promotes uh, history in lived-in landscapes, part of the National Park Service. So it's a little bit about um, our
0: organizations. right, so I will present first. Uh, I'm here to talk today about uh, this, uh, the long, very name-long in Portuguese, but <laughs> it Museum of Afro-Brazilian History and Culture. And it's. I'm going to present its process and its uh, its history, and it's. Uh, must hear it as a work in progress. Um, this lady is called uh, Mrs. Nusamar Nogueira. She was the first black woman to be nominated in 2017 as Secretary of Culture in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, one of the first women that I can remember. I am originally from Sao Paulo, but like, in working in all these towns, like you know, a black uh, woman being a secretary of culture was something very unique. Um, and she is the granddaughter of one of the biggest samba composers in Brazil. He's Comis mm-hmm. Cartola. And as such, she built her life as an advocate for Afro-Brazilian culture and what it means in our society, what it means for Afro-descendants. Uh, and a huge advocate for the the valuation of that culture. So, uh, Dr. Nogueira's commitment, her first commitment when she took office, was to set up the beginnings of a a museum in Rio de Janeiro dedicated to telling the stories of the Afro-Brazilian, or the Afro-Cariocas, as would be based in Rio de Janeiro. In a country where 52% of the population is self-declared as black, but actually it's closer, probably to about 70, and in real 70 to 75% of the population are self-declared black, the sheer uh, evidence of the difficulty to discuss these stories, of the scarcity of such initiatives in the city and in the country, of the urgency to make uh, to create dialogues around our 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 collective stories, because it's not only an Afro-Brazilian story, it's a Brazilian story. Um, And to use this heritage and this culture and this history to pave the way, maybe to discuss a more equitable and just society, why are we having so much trouble discussing these stories. So this was not an easy premise, but that's what the premise and that was her dream. She dreamed them for many years and this was her first commitment upon taking office in January 2017. So a little bit of historical background of what also was going on at the at the at in Rio de Janeiro at that time. So Brazil received, I think uh, most of you may know that Brazil received more than forty percent of all the enslaved Africans that left the African continent. So just a quick number. Whereas I think that about five hundred thousand were brought to North America. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, I didn't. Jump to this slide, which is got the number. I'm sorry about that. A staggering 4.68 million, roughly, and some people say closer to 5 million, enslaved Africans were taken to Brazil. Okay, of these 2 million, went to Rio de Janeiro alone, and then in Rio de Janeiro, between 500 and 900 thousand disembarked in a port in the last uh, 20 years of the official Atlantic transatlantic slave trade. Between 1811 and 1831, they disembarked at a place called Valongo Wharf. Valongo Wharf, then, you can imagine, received about 150 enslaved Africans every day. So probably wasn't exactly like that. Ships were probably not arriving every day. So you imagine like twice a week, there would be 500 to 1,000 enslaved Africans coming off ships. And the middle of a very affluent area of Rio de Janeiro. So the measure was, okay, let's build this port outside of town. Let's move it off somewhere else. This was not the Valongo Wharf yet. So when the Valongo was was built, it was to basically remove and contain all the African population that was arriving in these boats. And it was like highly disturbing for all these very affluent, wealthy uh, Portuguese descendants and all those families that were living there. So they created the sport in an area that was geographically enclosed by, by mountains and uh, visually and physically separated from the rest of town. And that became, not surprisingly, with time, known as the Little Africa, Piquena Africa. So that, that region, uh, it not only, uh, obviously, it was a place of disembarkment of Africans, but it also was a, the place where the markets the slave markets were, where all the arrival and the quarantine and the cemeteries of those who didn't make it or die upon arrival, everything happened in that area, as well as all the uh, activities that were now linked to the port and that were dealing uh, with the coffee trade, which was at that stage uh, the biggest economic activity in which the, the enslaved Africans were involved in their descendants. So... This Pequena Africa became uh, uh, a region that was much more complex in terms of the the presence of Africans in the city of Rio, and even though the the activities of the port were abolished in 1831, which by no means that slavery ended, because it continued with the disembarkment of uh, enslaved Africans in ports that were um, uh, clandestine on the north and south of Rio de Janeiro for a long time, uh, slavery was only abolished in Brazil in 1888, so it never changed. Even though the disembarkment ended at that stage in that place, never ended the, it never changed the characteristic of that area of the city. So in 1843, in an attempt to kind of erase that history, that part received a makeover. Uh, and became the Empress Port, and it was a place for the disembarkment of who was supposed to be the new wife of the Emperor of Brazil, Teresa Cristina de Bourbon, the Princess of the Two Sicilies. She was going to arrive there. They did a makeover, lots of statues, etc. Created a monumental access. So they started. We started talking about the usual layering that cities receive, and this in an attempt to kind of erase whatever possible of that history in that region. Then um, in, uh, in uh, 1888, abolition came, and soon after, another radical urban reform uh, completely flattened many structures of that area in an attempt to now push all the black people out of that area because they, the city had come closer and they, that area became uncomfortable again. So this process basically led to the birth of the favelas in Rio and most of Brazil, but this is another presentation I'm not going to get into now. So Valongo Wharf and the Empress Wharf, they were excavated during the build-up for the Olympic Games, where that whole region was receiving a a whole regeneration project. Big museums like the Museum of Future that you guys probably have seen, they were all around that area. And in excavating that area, they found a structure that was in old maps, but nobody was sure that was there. Not only they found the structure and they excavated the two layers of the port, but they excavated a staggering 466,035 items, most of of which related to the African diaspora. So this collection, this archaeological collection, became uh, not only a site, but the collection itself became like a very uh, uh, compelling reason and evidence and gave really like a complete new meaning to getting this project going. So Valongo geographically is there. The blue line that you see around the going into the sea is the history, This is the, the evolution of the land reclaims that happened with time. The little red uh, dot there is where the port was. To the right, out of the blue line around the curve that is out of the picture was where the old with port and the city center used to be, so it moved out. You can see the Consolacion Hill, Livramento Hill, and Saude Hill. They were completely enclosed by this hilly uh, Rio de Janeiro, very hilly city. And this is a picture of uh, of people working in the collections and and, and cleaning the collections and where, where it's housed today. So this is also a picture of the excavation uh, of the layers of the port. Uh, And the port is considered as one of the most uh, complete known slavery slavery memory sites in the world because of its layered history, because of the amount of items that were found, and because of the integrity of the structures and the way they managed to excavate uh, the undeniable uh, registers of history that it left. So this gave a completely new meaning to Dr. Newsomar's commitment to... Set up a museum, and not only that. In July 2018, 2018, yeah, in July 2018, Valongo was nominated a World Heritage Site by UNESCO. Okay, so this is the context in which this project begins. Can I apologize for this? And I can't even get there. Sorry. Uh, So when Dr. Nogueira learned of the opportunity for me to be here and that I was going to be engaging with a lot of actually people that she knew she had come to America, engaged with a lot of people in the process of trying to set up the institution, Uh, she said, please go there and present where we're at. It's interesting to hear other people's experiences, other institutions' experiences, and you know, let's see, it's good to try to form a network of support. So this museum, what it is, it tries to aims to tell the story of uh, the history of Valongo Wharf, port of interest of a great number of Africans and enslaved Africans in the world, and of an important memory sites surrounding its, uh, this landmark as a story of affirmation and resistance of black people in Rio de Janeiro. And by doing that, to revisit the development of Afro-Brazilian culture emanating from that, and to debate the concepts that come and the narratives as well as the situation of black Brazilians today. So the, the end goal of this museum is to work on today. Her vision is museums cannot have, uh, will not have a relevance without social impact. So basically that's the ultimate goal of the project. The elements of the project is we have three in that region. We have three elements. So there is a, a territory museum in the territory that with an epicenter at the Valongo Wharf, but in, it's, a, it's an open-air museum route. Then it has one building where now the pilot project runs, which is a reference center of the Afro-Atlantic and Afro-Brazilian uh, connections. And there's a separate building, which is an Afro-Brazilian and Afro-Atlantic interpretation center. Okay. And this is in the map. This big uh, A point here is where the Valongo Wharf used to be. As you now can see, all the reclaimed land around that same blue line. Uh, Valongo Wharf is, if you look at the A, there's a, a little red encircling that's Valongo Wharf. Then, if you walk to, if you go to your left, you have B being uh, the José Bonifácio School, which is where the reference center is, and C where the Olympic Village, which is called, became called as Olympic Village, is. Where, there are two, where houses one, of the archaeological collection is housed, and the other one where the museum, the interpretive center, is going to be placed. So this is the 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 site, and then all you see around it going on the backwards, because the sea the would be behind you, so everything beyond there is the territory. Uh, this is the Scholar José Bonifacio. The, and this is where the two warehouses are, A uh, and B, and where the, the interpretive center would be. And there's also a big component of, uh, of what I call macabi Digital. So the process to uh, to achieve this was a very participatory one. I just want to get a little bit of the. So there were basically three stages. One stage in twenty seventeen was a lot of hearing, like about two to three thousand people were heard through several kinds of like interviews, unstructured and structured interviews, some focus groups, questionnaires, uh, and a lot of meetings that took place of people that were interested and would come talk to us. This material generated a lot of knowledge, but uh, we needed systematization. So, in twenty from June 2018 onwards, we assigned a team to carry on with the engagement with the communities and build like proper ways to engage with the community because it was very unstructured. But also to systematize what it meant and what people really were interested in. So, from this uh, this consultation, we have mostly like. Uh, four or five points that came through that we know that really matter to people. One is that people said we want to hear a true story. We don't want to hear a fake story. We want to hear stories of people. We want to hear stories that really matter to us. Uh, uh, violence and public safety of young black people is a huge, uh, an issue of huge concern, and this needs to be addressed it's not necessarily a museum issue, but it is. So we have to deal with the root causes of that. And that's what we, if we're not getting to that, then it also won't have a lot of, of uh, significance. And then into that, the future of young people. And also the future of the community surrounding that. And we have in Brazil a law that obliges schools to uh, teach Afro-Brazilian uh, history. But that law, it's just there, and nobody knows how to implement it. So one of the objectives that, we, uh, that came out is like, you guys have to help teachers, you have to do train, train trainers to be able to implement this law and have to become a reference center on that. Um, other, other things that emanate is like the destruction of origin of identities, of or original identities. What happened to original identities? People don't know where they came from. Brazilian uh, African—they don't know exactly where their descendants came from. What, talk about the formation of an Afro-Brazilian culture and and all its complexity, not just like, oh it's samba and it's like it's this and it's that. And even samba is much more than just samba. So, uh, the role of enslaved Africans in building Brazil's wealth, so pre and post abolition, African heritage in art, science, humanities, and cultural expressions and tell this all from point of view of absolute resistance and affirmation. Two key points that came out. Slavery must not be the key story. Slavery is a departure, is a departing point to who we are. It doesn't define who we are. And the second point is the idea of freedom needs to be really problematized because black Brazilians don't feel free. So... um, it's been very bad at <laughs> moving these pages along. So, main purposes that emerged in the museum is trying to dedicate itself, is to revise uh, the current version of the written Brazilian history, acknowledging and making visible the buried stories of Afro-Brazilian people, um, to sensitize and create impact for visitors in general, and to transform the understanding of what it means to be black in Brazil which is a huge story. I mean, they're they're all broken down into many other categories, but we can discuss later. Uh, Other key focuses that emerged that are very of concern, it's like, can we discuss the journey back to, trace this journey back to Africa? Where did we come from? Is it possible to find ways to link back? And reclaim Hugh Janeiro's identity as a black city in the Americas. It is more than 70% black city, so why don't we see ourselves like that? Discuss the representations of black people in slavery in history narratives, and in our own narratives in general. Like we couldn't find one single image of an empowered black black body throughout all our research. Uh, the production of Afro-centered knowledge. So start systemizing, having a place as a repository of all this knowledge, because it's spread everywhere, and people are like doing efforts here, 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 and there, so become a hub where this knowledge can be incentivized, produced, and that it can be de- uh, become a re- repository. Uh, to discuss uh, issues of racial equality, uh, racial relations in the country, and also values of human rights. Advocate for uh, Afro-centered causes. People don't have places to go, so this could be a place to lead that kind of discussion. Empower Afro Brazilians is a big is a big mission, is a huge mission, but it's at the end, as I said, ultimately what at a small or medium or big level, what the museum wants to do, and to place Brazil in a global narrative, of transatlantic slave. Because I think maybe all of you experience that we are all talking separate narratives, but we're not. There's a There is a huge narrative around the Atlantic that we need to join forces. Uh, How from the bottom up, no negotiation on that. And then that's why it's been a long process, very difficult one, and with perils perils along the way. Uh, Through the protagonist's voices, through real people's lives, uh, interrogating the representations, having a critical approach to history, and embracing the difficulties of the initiative. The initiative has suffered many, many, many retaliations along the way. Uh, The worst retaliation being Dr. Nogueira losing her post as Secretary of Culture. So, yeah. It it disturbed so many people that actually she was ousted. And there's no other word. Because she was removed because of this project. People were not happy in the build-up to the next elections. In the current scenario of where Brazil is at. So... This is not deterring us, we're carrying on. We're going to other spheres of government and we're going to move on, but that's how bad it can be. So for whom? For local, so from like from looking from inside out, from the local territory community, which is mixed, is not 100% uh, or mostly black, it's very mixed. It's, it, it is 60, 65% black and a lot of, uh, of the descendants still live there. For the Afro-Brazilian and Afro-Carioca community in general, but you know, The aim is to touch society as a whole because you can't be talking to each other and not. If you don't change those that actually react to this history, you're not having a a real impact. Uh, So I think we've been through that. I think it's important here, two key processes were discussed. The centrality of Afro-Brazilian museum staff because they bring a different sensitivity and understanding of the issues. 95% of the staff of the museum is comprised of Afro-Brazilians today. So that made a huge difference in the planning process, in everything, because they can lead from within the institution. And it's been a very participatory process, built from the bottom up as much as possible with our communities and with our partners in the territory as well. Uh, I am going to quickly go through this. So this is Valongo, and then so this is uh, other pictures of Piquena Africa. So basically, Valongo having this difficult kind of feel, but Pequena Africa having a very positive uh, symbolism, a symbolism of resistance, etc. So we have these two territories which are very interesting. This is a uh, the open route in the territory. So there's uh, about ten points around in the territory. Um, this is a picture of where the the reference center is today, activities that are happening. This school in itself has a very interesting history, uh, which I can talk a little bit about later, but uh, also linked to educating young, Afro, uh, young Afro-descendants in that region in the, when it was uh, started in early 1800s. Um, and this is one of the warehouses where the interpretive center is going to be. So as you can see behind, we have a favela, which is one of the three favelas that surround our area. Uh, in this area, or in many areas or that you don't have direct access to the beach, like you're not on the Copacabana, Ipanema, famous beaches, right? Uh, you don't have a lot of public spaces for leisure and interaction and socializing. So a big a big feature of the interpretive center is to be a community center. So it's a place where people can go. Uh, they will have uh, space to practice sports to discuss to read a book we will uh, We're implementing literacy classes for adults because a lot of people are illiterate We are putting in place something run by also uh, a group of local people in an incubator of Social projects small social projects for young people of the area or or afro-descendants so there's all these this layer of uh, of social work that happens and um, that all the, the histories that are being collected are also starting to support the very uh, seedy, seeds of the project of the Brazilian Truth Commission on the history of of the slave trade. So it's a, it's a community center as well. And today, uh, as I said, the project is at a halt. This building symbolizes the crisis of the project because the original uh, what wasn't that other warehouse? You're supposed to be here, and then this building was disputed by people that were squatting in it uh, and making money out of this building, which is highly significant because it's on the Valongo Wharf, designed by the first black engineer that was building these huge public projects in Brazil. The first building built without slave uh, labor because he made a point that this could not have slave labor. And then today it's basically taken by an institution that's only run by non-Afro descendants and that says that it's cultural but it m- makes all its money out of making parties in this building. So they are there, they refuse to get out, they're friends with former politicians that eventually got the Secretary of Culture ousted because we claimed the building for the museum. So that's where we're at. There's many more that we can say about it but I've said enough. I'm sure I went over my time <laughs> a little bit but I've Pass that on to my friends so they can tell their stories.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: All right, looks like we're just getting set up here. Okay, perfect. Uh, okay, so uh, w- uh, both uh, Caitlin and I are from the Niagara Falls Underground Railroad Heritage Center. Uh, we do have a really long uh, name, um, so sometimes I will also refer to us as the museum, just to kind of get it, uh, keep it a little shorter. Um, but our exhibition title is called uh, One More River to Cross, um, and that's a really important title to uh, the exhibition and the museum and the stories that we share as a whole. Um, one More River to Cross uh, is in reference to there is one river uh, between where we are where these stories happened in Niagara Falls and to freedom in Canada. Um, so that is the feature title um, of our exhibition. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about you know, how we got here and how we're working on creating a resistance movement in the work that we're just really starting out to do um, now. Um, so first I'm going to talk a little bit about just uh, what was going on in Niagara Falls, why Niagara Falls. Next slide. Thank you. Um, so Most folks know Niagara Falls as an international uh, tourist destination, a natural wonder of the world. And throughout time, uh, visitors from all over the world have come to Niagara Falls, as they do today. Um, originally, of course, uh, there were uh, Tuscarora Native Americans that inhabited uh, the land um, and later Europeans descended uh, upon the land and, and started turning it into a village and, and decided that, hey, this is a really great place to live, I want to be near the water, and then eventually also it was turned into um, a place for power and industry. So there's a lot of history around Niagara Falls, um, making it a, a sought after destination for people from all over the world throughout time. What was also a really important part of Niagara Falls, the focus of our stories, of course, is that folks were coming uh, to escape uh, enslavement in the south and get to freedom in Canada. It was a, a, a very important passage on the Underground Railroad. If you think about the geography of the United States, uh, there's a lot of bodies of water between the U.S. and Canada in this uh, section, the Great Lakes, and and crossing that. So as uh, people had journeyed all the way from the south, they were getting up here towards the north, there there were certain crossing points that were the most um, effective ways uh, to be able to cross. Niagara Falls was one of those uh, locations. Uh, The water, uh, the the river was uh, much more narrow in this section, and there were three crossing points in Niagara. And there was also um, one in Buffalo as well. Um, In Niagara Falls, uh, it's a little hard to see in this image here, um, the falls are kind of coming from above and there's this um, walkway or a passageway where there were stairs um, underneath there. And that was um, originally built as a ladder uh, by Native Americans and then later Europeans turned it into a stairway where people could get down uh, to uh, the bottom of the falls and then cross by ferry boat, which you can see in the corner of the image here. Um, so that was a, a major crossing point, and it was also very um, important and dramatic on this long leg of uh, the journey from, uh, from the South. Um, the last steps that freedom seekers had to take before they crossed to Canada were down these stairs uh, very often and um, into the 10-minute into the or 15-minute boat ride as the falls thundered above. A very, very uh, powerful experience. Um, there was also a crossing point um, uh, at the suspension bridge um, that was located right outside of the front of our building for the Heritage Center, um, which was just uh, down the river a, a little bit. There was also a crossing point in Lewiston and Youngstown as uh, the Niagara River opened up into the mouth of uh, Lake Ontario. So it's a little bit of information just again about the geographics. Um, but what's most important, um, and all of these pieces kind of had to come together in history, um, were the people on the Underground Railroad, the freedom seekers. Um, Um, who were uh, coming to find their freedom, escaping um, enslavement, but also the people that lived and worked um, in Niagara Falls as well. Um, So the waiters, uh, I say the waiters, uh, the hotel industry was booming uh, during the time of the Underground Railroad, just as it is today as a tourist destination. People came from all over the world. They wanted to uh, relax, go on vacation here. Um, Many of those visitors came from southern plantations, and they brought their enslaved servants with them up here. But at the hotels there um, in, in Niagara Falls and also throughout New York State a little bit as well, but specifically in Niagara Falls, at the Cataract House Hotel, the hotel proprietor had hired an all-black wait staff, um, and many of those uh, individuals had been um, enslaved previously. Um, but they never lost their jobs for that. Um, they did work on the Underground Railroad, um, never lost their jobs either. And they were really they're the they're the key players in this story. They're uh, the focus of our museum, and their stories haven't been told until now. So, I'm going to pass the mic over to uh, Caitlin to talk a little bit more about uh, the waiters and some of the stories of the Underground Railroad.
1: Um, I like to think that the stories that we share at our museum are very unique, um, and I think that what sets this apart from the usual Underground Railroad story, you kind of think of secrecy, things just really happening at night all the time, but here at this museum, things are happening in the middle of the day, there are people who know that this is happening, but there are also people who don't know, like Robert E. Lee's son, who actually stays at the cataract house, and I'm pretty sure if he knew what was going on, he wouldn't have wanted to stay there. But these waiters, they. Basically, assemble together and they form a coalition that symbolizes freedom. This hotel is a portal to freedom, right? Um, and it's very important for uh, us to show that black people are helping black people get to freedom. And what we make sure we push through, even at the beginning of our tours, is to let people know that black people were never docile that they've been always fighting for their freedom and they've been taking their freedom into their own hands so we show this with these waiters at the hotel and one of the leaders being John Morrison who is the head waiter at the Cataract House and he's known for personally helping quite a few people get across the river rowing them personally to get to freedom Um, and people would see him over in Lundy's Lane which is a street over on the Niagara Falls Canadian side um, helping other black people settle in getting them adjusted to their new life of freedom so one of my favorite stories and we have many stories that we share um, at the museum is that of nancy berry so prior to nancy berry's escape her mother escapes and unfortunately she is recaptured but she's brought back and they sell away her husband and she tells her children that if you ever get a chance to freedom i want you to go for it and nancy gets that chance when she's brought up to niagara falls by her enslavers and um, they brought her up because they're celebrating their honeymoon after being married for some years and one of of her enslaver says to her that Nancy, you have a whole entire day to do whatever you want, um, and Nancy decides to leave. Um, but I think that perfectly illustrates this uh, relationship dynamic that enslavers have with the enslaved, and what I mean by that is um, enslavers. Have this paternalistic understanding or the way that they treat black people during this time. They think, Well, I clothe you, I feed you, I give you a place to stay, I'm civilizing you, I'm doing you a favor. There's no possible way that you'll want to leave me. And so you really see after the Civil War um, and Uh, during the Civil War in diaries and in letters a lot of enslavers are very confused and are like well Hattie said she loved me why would she leave I mean Hattie's going to say what she's going to say in order to survive this horrific system but also it's really important for us to question what does a relationship mean during this time when there are power dynamics at play is there really a relationship right and I know in one of the rooms next door they're talking about Sally Hemings and we always this is a conversation that's constantly had what does that relationship mean is it even a relationship um and we have to be honest that enslaved people are multifaceted individuals right so maybe they do kind of have some feelings for the people that they've enslaved they've been stuck with them their whole entire lives but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's you know it it is what it is it's stockholm syndrome in a way right um so these stories really represent the freedom and the perseverance of black people, right? We don't want to tell the the really sad story. And it's not glossing over thing, It's not ignoring things. But it's very important to talk about black people with power. And not a lot of people are introduced to that. So now we're going to talk about uh, narratives of resilience. I'm going to pass it over.
2: Yeah, so to con- kind of continue on uh, what Caitlin was talking about a little bit here, we at the museum we take a strength based approach to uh, telling uh, the stories of the Underground Railroad um, in Niagara Falls, and what we've seen in in the research and. And understanding these stories as it's come together over the last decade or so, um, that that's actually those are the stories that are there. The communi- when we look at who lived and worked in the Niagara Falls communities during the time of the Underground Railroad, we we do see a uh, mix um, between white and black abolitionists. But the stories of the waiters are really. That's what has not been told. That has w- is what has been either ignored or left behind over all of these years. Um, during the time period, um, we could find we could find records, um, diary entries, newspaper articles. You know, hence to do the research to uncover the stories of the waiters. But that was always that was lost to history. Um, nobody had paid attention to that after it happened. For the most part, it wasn't really well known. Um, but, however, there were community members uh, who had started to do this work decades ago and knew that there was history and they knew that there were stories and they kind of had a, a very general understanding of the fact that, wait, there were people here doing this work. There were, there were waiters and, wait, Harriet Tubman came through here. Um, and nobody had worked to uncover that. So um, our community members got together and advocated for that. They formed uh, the Niagara Falls, the um, Underground Railroad Heritage State Heritage Area, um, which uh, took uh, a lot of effort in, in getting the legislation and, and pr- getting funding secured and all of that, um, which was a really critical piece to being able to move this project forward. Um, but as and, and as they did that, they. Um, also brought in uh, professionals and historians and a team to really continue to help uncover these stories. And I had said that we opened last year in May of 2018, and up until that date, we were still uncovering stories. As our exhibits were going into production, we were calling to make one last change because we uncovered another name in the Cataract House Register that we didn't know. One example was uh, Austin Stewart, um, who uh, was formerly enslaved and then became um, an abolitionist and and many other things. And we had found, uh, reading some uh, some records, that he actually stayed at the Cataract House. And we wanted to include that in part of our exhibit um, and it was you know, right at the deadline, and we were like, wait, wait, we have to get this in because it continues to tell uh, stories um, you know, that empower uh, black individuals in, in, this, in history, and we wanted to move that forward. And we had an image of him, which was great, so we were able to include that right. in our exhibit kind of that was front and center when in the part where we're talking about who came to the cataract house. So uh, Caitlin mentioned that uh, Robert E. Lee's family came to the cataract house. Uh, I think it was... 1860 1860 or 1859 and when and but instead of focusing on that we, we we show that we talk about it we have a dialogue around that but what we're showing instead is a, a large picture of Austin Stewart who came to the cataract house because we're looking to move those stories forward taking that strength based approach um, and really just shifting shifting that narrative um, so when I talk about oh yeah creating um, creating the space for the museum, so our um, wonderful uh, board and community volunteers who had been pushing this forward for over a decade, uh, they kind of got to a stage where okay now we need to we need to create a space. Um, so with the city of Niagara Falls, we were able to uh, secure. The building that we're in, it's a a multi-use facility. It's actually the new Niagara Falls train station. Um, And the building we're in is the former 1863 U.S. Customs House. Now there's no underground railroad history specifically in that building. However, right outside our front windows, our front doors is where the original suspension bridge was located. The suspension bridge was built in um, 1848 and then rebuilt in 1855 to incorporate rail traffic, um, and that is the bridge that many freedom freedom seekers, including Harriet Tubman, had crossed. So there's a new bridge. It's not that new, but there's a there's a bridge in its location now. Um, but that significance of place, where the building is, where these stories are told is really important. I also mentioned that our museum is located um, in our local black community in the north end of Niagara Falls, which is also really important um, for our community who are very possibly descendants of many of the freedom seekers um, or waiters. Uh, We actually do know a few folks, which is really exciting, and we're hoping that that's a future step we can take in helping people learn more about their history um, through this work but I'm getting a little off topic, I think. Um, so we talking a little bit about the exhibition. Um, so as we built it, more river to cross, um, we went through a, a pretty quick process. So we sent out an RFP in 2016, the end of the year. Um, we were looking for, we, there had been some work done previously, but we were trying to kind of move in a, a little bit of a different direction. We ended up hiring three design firms to help us. And our, and we had, um, at the time, uh, two, I think it was two part-time staff members, and then it was our volunteer board. So we were a pretty small team, but we, our board knew the vision that they were looking for. They wanted the local history, the perspectives of the freedom seekers, the waiters, um, and focusing on what happened here and moving that forward, and also connecting the past to the present, which we'll talk a little bit about in a minute. So we went through this process, and and we brought on our design firms, um, and they, um, their thoughts and their work and vision aligned with what we were trying to do. So we now had this even bigger team to be able to move this forward, um, and the process went uh, very quickly. Uh, as I said, we opened in May last year, um, and leading up to that, you know, in putting the exhibits into our space, we're about two thousand square. Uh, we have about two thousand square feet of space, um, and we have five galleries and an atrium space in the train station. Um, so, and you can see one of the galleries here in this image. Um, I think the next slide, once we get to it, also has another a gallery as well. So we we worked a lot with. Um, creating an immersive experience um, in the space. We don't have a lot of artifacts because most of our research came from newspaper articles and and written and documents. So we wanted to think about this history is so important. It's so critical. How do we tell this in in an engaging way? So there's, in the exhibits, we brought in an artist to create um, artworks for that it depict these stories. You can see it in, in the screen a little bit up there. And some of the slides that we just were on uh, showed some of that artwork as well by um, an artist from uh, Philadelphia, actually, E.B. Lewis. Um, and we worked with him to, uh, as accurately as possible, depict freedom seekers and the waiters in these stories. We had limited images um, of the folks, uh, of the people whose stories we were trying to push forward. So this was also another critical component to think about. Well, if you don't have visuals of the people whose stories you want to share, how do you do that? Um, and oftentimes we've seen in underground railroad exhibits or interpretation, or s- oftentimes uh, surrounding Black history, um, we we don't we see a picture of maybe the safe house or the white abolitionist. Um, and we we wanted to make sure that the faces of the people whose stories we're trying to share are up. It, the front and center is, is the core part of what we're trying to do so that plays a huge role um, into the museum um, but also we did included scenic buildouts of the suspension bridge of the cataract house facade the train station original train station to again create that immersive experience so while people are learning these histories they're also in a space that allows them to connect on a you know hopefully a, a deeper level based on what's uh, what they're experiencing
1: So the Freedom Gallery is actually my favorite gallery in the museum because what we do, what we uh, uh, try to do is connect the past to the present. So one of the things I get told all the time, Um, Every time I tell somebody I'm a history student, they're like, "Uh, it's all about dates and history is boring and it's the past. And I'm like, all right. okay." So what we really try to do is to show that the past is not just the past, that it reverberates through to the present. And we see remnants of it constantly, especially with slavery, because we can't just say slavery was just, you know, 200 years ago. Right. We're still feeling the effects in our laws and housing discrimination, various things, urban planning. We have an expressway called the Kensington Expressway in Buffalo. And it that well, the way it's situated is it cuts off the haves and the have-nots. And mostly the have-nots are black people, people of color. So it was purposely done, right? But the Freedom Gallery really shows that freedom, like, Angela Davis says freedom is a constant struggle at that. We're constantly working across the country that slavery is not a thing of the past. And this is something um, we make sure to tell our visitors, because in one of the spaces of the museum, we talk about legal geography and then we kind of end with talking about uh, the amendment, the 13th Amendment, and I have to tell people, you know, slavery didn't end because there is a loophole in the 13th Amendment, and that um, is how we get the prison industrial complex that we have today, but when you go in the Freedom Gallery, we make connections, whether it's the Jewish struggle, or it's the Latinx struggle, or it is the LGBTQ struggle, that all of this is somehow connected, and that if it doesn't affect you directly, it will affect you indirectly and this is why we have to do something about it this is why we have to have these tough conversations right these uncomfortable conversations nobody likes talking about race sometimes even though i focus on race a lot i get tired of talking about race it's exhausting right but um what happens is that when we don't talk about this it turns into we already have a wound right in this country and when you don't tend to wounds it festers and then what happens when it festers it has an infection then it's really hard to work with right so you have to try and heal it we can't even heal because people in this country are in denial about a lot of things um in liverpool they just had a 400th year um anniversary celebration of slavery um and liverpool has a really great museum and someone on twitter said wow what if we could do this here i'm like we can't because people are not in recognition mode we can't even get to reconciliation because people are not recognizing and so in this gallery we want people to see that the fight is not over and that there is a lot of work that needs to be done and that uh it's important that we Understand that there are things that Stem from slavery like in this gallery We've interviewed five people from the Western New York area so we have a descendant Of Josiah Henson who um, Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin after him she, uh, Interviewed uh, Josiah Henson And so his descendant works with us um, And so we have Show his story we show A, a young teenager in her story In Western New York to try to get people To be empathetic And to understand that that they need to make these connections. we want to draw those connections out of them or have them do it themselves without us doing much of that work to realize like, hey, do you see how, how you respond to what's happening with immigration today is how do you respond to black people escaping to Canada as refugees. While there are different situations, there are a lot of similarities. And so it's really important for us to drive this point home when we're in the Freedom Gallery because we want people to be empathetic.
2: So now kind of moving um, on a little bit to some of the work that we're doing as is, is, uh, Caitlin's talking about some of our goals and objectives for that, for the Freedom Gallery uh, is our last gallery um, in our exhibition, but through the work that we do in sh- shifting the power. So in the exhibition, you know, we focus on the stories of the waiters, of the freedom seekers. That's already shifting the power. We're putting them at the forefront and uh, center. But there's much more work to be done beyond that. So that's that's in the built-out exhibits. That's the starting part. Um, from there, uh, just checking the next slide. Oh, okay, so I'm going to pass it back to you then. Um, so, yeah, so in terms of the work that there's more than just the built exhibits. It's in what we do every single day.
1: So we use different words when we're talking about slavery and it think it's really imperative for us to be careful of the language that we use so we don't say slave we use enslaved because it is a condition that has been forced upon someone nobody is born as slave nobody africans did not come over here as slaves they were enslaved right um and we don't use the term master or owner that's very passive language so we use the term enslaver it is always the fault of the enslaver that the enslaved has been put in this predicament right um and so when we're talking about black people escaping to freedom we don't call them uh what is the term what is the word we don't we don't call them fugitives, thank you. We don't call them fugitives because fugitives has like ne- negative connotations attached to them, right? And so we call them freedom seekers because we're trying to give some agency back to them um, and showing that they're taking their freedom into their own hands. And there is power in language. Some people may think this is sugarcoating it, but we don't see it as that way. Um, as an academic myself and other academics, we actually lean towards using this language more than we use uh, use the word slave, um, master, or owner because it's important to shift the narrative and to also give power back to black people. I think people forget that while these people are enslaved they do have dreams and they have hopes and they have desires and they experience feelings just like we experience them today and for so long black people who've been enslaved have been talked about as objects and they're not they're fully fleshed individuals so it's really important for us to describe them as such when we're talking about slavery and so when we're talking about slavery and we're using these words we also make sure we do facilitated dialogue and facilitated dialogue is where we basically have a conversation with people on our tours you are actually trained by the international sites of conscience uh, to give facilitated dialogue so it's not really your standard tour where you just listen to me drone on about history but I could go on forever if you want me to but what we do is we try to have a conversation with you Uh, we try to do these uh, three level questions we want you to come to conclusions. We want you to also do the work with us to see what we see. We want you to arise to the occasion as well, because it's only I can only do so much if I'm explaining this history to you. While I would love to do that, it's important for people to feel engaged, and this is what we want to do. We see our museum as an experiential museum, a really uh, engaged museum, is that we hope that f- people feel a connection to it in the work that we're doing and that they feel like they're part of the conversation. Because this museum is not just for us, it's for everybody. And while this is a black story, it's everybody's story too that's connected to it. So we hope that people participate in these conversations. I can, I don't mind an awkward silence until somebody says something. And it may be awkward in the beginning, but it's beautiful to hear the conclusions that people can come to. I There will be sometimes times where I don't even have to say Oh, this is what's—it's like immigration with uh, brown and black immigrants. Some people can say that themselves, and it makes me feel like I've done my job, where they can come to that conclusion where I've done it just a little bit, but without saying it. And that's basically what that facilitated dialogue is, is we want people to care. And I thought uh, this museum coming up was very perfect at the time because it was, you know, during we we needed something after the election. People wanted to know, what do I do? Where can I get some hope? And I see our museum as a call to act. Not something to be sad about. You know, I want people to rise to the occasion. I want them to heed that call, whatever that looks like.
2: So talking about call to action um, and the work that we do with our tours and our interpretive experience, our facilitated dialogue experience, uh, we've been open, you know, just a little bit over a year and we're constantly thinking about and working towards, um, you know, being sustainable, all the things that museums need to do, especially as a new museum, but also in how do we carry our mission forward? How do we keep doing that every day in all the work that we do? Um, So... A lot of the ways that we do that is shifting, is shifting the power beyond the stories, beyond uh, in, including, but um, in addition to, I'm sorry, um, the stories, but and the interpretive experience, but also who's running the museum too. So um, I'm the interim director, and as I had mentioned, I brought I started as a project manager to kind of come on through. So what. Part of that process is is also a transition it, um, in, in getting the museum to where it needs to be and in, in providing an opportunity for others to be able to step up where I would step back and others I- as well so that we're not continuing to create the space where there are you know um, no people of color in, in these leadership positions in these spaces. So that is somewhere where we're at right now and working on that transition period because we're talking about these stories. We also need to live these stories and the mission of the museum as well. So that's something that we're working on, and it's definitely. Um it, you know, it, it takes a little bit of time based on just kind of how we got to this point. But being a year in, we're really being able to see how our operations run. Uh, we've changed our staffing structure a few times, actually, um, because we're seeing different needs. Uh, group tours is one example. Um, we get a, a large amount of group tours in a very, very small space. Um, so we've spent kind of a, really a, a year trying to get that kind of organized. Um, we realized we needed kind of um, a visitor services manager. So we brought in a, a person for that position. So as we're shifting these, we're creating changes for sustainability, success in the future, but most importantly is, again, shifting that power um, and making sure that black voices are heard um, and are at the forefront in, in all the work that we do.
1: Um, so just uh, going on, talking about, like, mobilizing, but just to go off of what Ali was talking about, stepping back and stepping up, is... Uh, Diversity is a word that we hear all the time now. And it's something that people want to focus on and that people care about. But I think what people fail to realize with diversity is that it's cool if you diversify something, but you should create something with the intention of including me, not just as an add-on. right? And I think that happens so many times is that people of color, LGBTQ people, people from marginalized groups are just add-ons. It Systems, different things are not created with us in mind. Um, but what happens is like... You can't, dive, you can't diversify something And then include me And then it not be a safe space So while you diversify something You have to make sure that when you're bringing pe- Marginalized people into these spaces It needs to be safe for them Otherwise what's the point of diversifying anything It really was no point Because then you're Uh, repeating the same thing over and over again. So it's just something to keep in mind is how am I diversifying? Well, also, how am I making a space safe for them? And also, how am I making sure that from the get-go, this was part of the What I was doing is the inclusion. So before I worked here, I um, was doing a lot of organizing and I was part of a group called Just Resisting. And we did a lot of direct actions and protesting. Um, And one of the actions that we did was a blocking off trains when um, people from the suburbs would come in to see Trump when he came in 2014 to Buffalo. And there were a lot of police, and they brought dogs, and they brought horses. They even brought a tank. It was probably one of the most scariest times of my life that I had experienced, but to see people mobilize like that, to elicit a reaction like that, reminded me how powerful our voices are and how people get scared when we come together to do the work that is really necessary. And I wanted to share that because even in the museum's world, we need to mobilize. And people may not feel like we need to, but we are seeing a transition. We are seeing people calling out things. We were seeing people trying to work towards a better a future in our institutions, because it is necessary for their longevity. People may not believe that, but in order for these institutions to survive, they need to grapple with their history, and also to confront that and transform themselves in the way that is beneficial for everybody and not just some people so we always have to keep everybody in mind that you should make all these initiatives with people in mind from the very beginning not just an add-on and so it's really important for us to understand what are we going to bring to the table What Uh, stories are we telling and how are we telling them and whose story are we telling and this is why this museum is so important because we're telling black stories from black voices from their perspectives right um and sadia hartman says a historian she says you know in venus in two acts one of her articles she said if we don't get anything else then maybe for black people telling our stories is reparations right if we don't get to see physical cash money for land then maybe controlling our own narratives is our reparations and for me that's what it looks like for me telling my own stories centering blackness in all that I do is part of those reparations at the moment Um, and this is why we have to do this work. This is why it's so important. So it's not only asking in everybody in the audience, but asking ourselves up here, what will we bring to the table? What is the work that you feel that is necessary to do? Because here's the thing, diversity is uncomfortable. That means some people are going to have to relinquish power or share power. Some people don't like doing that. Uh, one of the things I see a lot in academia is this is around the time where people start getting tenure. Right, and they get the messages. And a lot of the people that I'm seeing getting tenure in ethnic studies in African-American history, sometimes there are a lot of white people. And then they'll be like, well, where are all the black people? Where are all the other people of color? And I'm like, well, you kind of are in the position, right? So it's thinking about what that means for you. I'm like, I'm not saying, please don't study this history. I think it's necessary. Please study the history. Go to school and learn about my history, right? So it can inform you on how you interact with the people around you and the history and grapple with that. But also, some people are going to have to relinquish power, and you have to ask yourself, are you ready for that? And are you ready to step back to let other people step up?
3: So, yeah, that's our presentation.
1: (laughs) So now we're opening up to questions. So thank you for listening to us. So, yeah. Sometimes you have to take it. I don't think it's always going to be really easy just to tell someone, like, hey, you need to give it your position. Because here's the thing. Some people feel like they worked hard for that position, right? They feel like they've put in years of work. They've written a a couple of books. It looks great on their CV. They don't want to leave. And sometimes you just have to do the necessary work to get what you want, right? Nothing... One of one of the things um, I've been thinking about is my relationship to money in the past couple of months and relationship to how I see millionaires and billionaires. And one of the things I think is nobody is self-made. Billionaires and millionaires are not self-made. They have to step on people to get to where they are.
0: Once I heard from a psychologist, somebody says, but, I, you know, I don't know how to, trying to occupy, to occupy, to occupy a position or do something in their lives that they couldn't do. And they keep saying, no, I can't do it. There's no space for me. Mm -hmm. And the response was so enlightening for me. She said, "Um, the space is there for everyone. It's like water. Water takes space. Be the water and take the space. The law gives you the right. On paper, it's all good, right? We're all equal. We all should share power. Just go and do it. So I, that's why I feel I think in the work that I do, there's um, the, the, the question of, of language and the passive and the, and the active words and all these. The simple shift in our team from people using passive words to using active words uh, was such a transformation of power. And they were taking that power. And then all of a sudden that power was theirs. So I, it's exactly what you say. You take it. Because you have the right to take it. The reasons why people don't take power or the reasons why others don't relinquish power, you don't ask. You go and do it. You do what's your right. And then there are going to be consequences. There are going to be conflict. And so conflict is inherent to this type of, of dynamics we are trying to break. So I think the, the issue is, is not how people how do you ask people to give power. You take the power and then we have to mediate or deal with the consequences that's going to happen, which is a conflict which is necessary for change. So there's no way to go unscathed doing this work.
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, to answer your question um, about uh, the Castellani, so there was the Underground Railroad exhibit that was at the Castellani. Um, In 2016, uh, we helped them move it. It was donated to the Niagara Arts and Cultural Center, the NAC. um, And then we helped to revamp it to fit into that space. So actually what's really exciting is that there is another Underground Railroad exhibit in addition to our museum in Niagara Falls that people could visit to learn about the Underground Railroad that was from the Castellani and it's been redesigned with other elements in it to kind of fit into the space. Um, But it was really exciting to be able to see that be reused and not just okay the exhibit is now I I was like nine or ten years old or something like that and that's it but there was a reuse for it especially in the community surrounding the NAC there's um, lots of uh, young uh, young kids in that community who come in on school field trips to go see that exhibit, um, in addition to also like coming to our museum as well. So it's great to have that history in multiple places um, as well. And um, yeah, thanks for sharing that your your local connection uh, through Niagara University and everything like that. So, um, and then I don't know if you wanted to add anything else too.
1: I forgot. <laughs> she you wanted, you wanted to say.
0: Can, do you want to come forward, I think? Because they yeah, asked a story to a recall We forgot to read back. Yeah. Yeah,
4: yeah. <laughs> um, so I wanted to follow up on some of the last comments um, because... Uh, for those who are in um, these fields um, really this importance of allies and to be on the committees that are hiring and also on the graduate committees because um so i'm in a history department i teach at the university of wisconsin milwaukee Um, so milwaukee is the most segregated city uh, it's been said in in the country so it's very important we have an access mission but even so because we're, we're based in a history department and as you know public history is generally Marginal, it can be. I mean art is not necessarily, but in, in the understanding of what a graduate's uh, p- uh, prospective student can bring to the program. And so we often have to really argue for the cases of students who would really enrich, the, you know, the, bring a lot to the program, and it's important also to in, you know, include them. And it's it was striking to me how one or two people can make a really big difference. And so With that, I think that um, just mentoring, I mean, even beyond, because um, just uh, mentoring networks, if you can speak to that uh, um, for, let's say, students in training, so that they'll be in the positions to be hired and to be included, and also in terms of resources, because... You know, after this, you inspired me. I'm going to. Um, so Lonnie Bunch, like famously, raised um, the money for the uh, the National Museum in Washington in in record time. And so I'd like to. You know, we have difficulty with resources, and just like having dedicated like, a fellowship for um, students. We so have not him, him directly just advice as far as who, because I'm sure we could connect with donors, and that's just that's so crucial, so that they're in the position to, to um, apply for those positions and to raise into, uh, rise into leadership positions.
1: So, I've been really blessed to, during my undergrad career, I received multiple history scholarships in the history department for underrepresented communities, um, and actually the man who was funding the scholarship, he had passed away, it was him and his wife, and so we had to, I was invited to a ceremony to give remarks, um, and he specifically was a, he was a white man who was giving his money to up-and-coming underrepresented people in the history department. He, and I recently just got the Arthur Schomburg Fellowship at my university um, as well. And I think like people have to put their money where their mouth is. Like they have to, like, have, you have to like give money. Like if you want to see change, you have to uh, give money. Right now, I am currently the only black person in my master's uh, program, um, I, I, it's kind. Of, I'm still trying to deal with it emotionally, uh, but I have a really good network of professors that I've worked with who really support me. Um, and if anything happened, I know I can count on them. But it's really important to create those networks with each other to create communities with one another in these departments and sometimes i feel like it's really redundant to only have like people of color on the diversity um committees like we know we need diversity it's kind of like a other it's like i feel like it's like i feel like it's white people's job to like do that in a way like if you see there's like a lack of us it's like don't put me on the committee i know there's a lack of us like at the university at buffalo a couple years ago in our newspaper the Spectrum. there was an article about our exodus of Black professors at the university. There are currently only two black professors in the history department, and we just had an interview for a professor for African American African American history, African history, and two black men um, interviewed for the position, and one white men, woman did, and she got the job, and she's she seems really great. You know, I'm taking one of her classes right now, but I think that's very telling, right? You know, uh, what does that mean? And it's not saying like she's not qualified to do it but also if you really want to be inclusive like what does that mean and she was on tenure track at like another place anyways so she was like doing fine and then it this like brings up to talking about like public history i don't know if anybody uh paid attention to this but I'm on Twitter a whole lot and so last September uh it came out that Timothy Ann Burnside was going to curate the hip-hop exhibit at the Smithsonian and she is a white woman and so all of us on Twitter were like what what and, and and a lot of people came to her defense they were like well she's qualified I was like it's not about qualification but also what you yeah, but also what you're implying is that there it's not a black person that's qualified to do that when you say well she's super qualified nobody's saying she's not qualified but people don't understand that hip hop is not just music it's cultural expression it's part of my culture and my heritage right so it's deeper than that and she's been in the Smithsonian system for a while which is great and she's done some great work and she has some hip-hop artist that's been in the game for in, from the inception of hip-hop that support her but I think again it goes back to controlling our narratives right like who's telling our stories and who is allowed to tell them
0: so the issue of <clears throat> of uh, the the lack of black scholars in the research field for example it's something that's not only here I think it's everywhere uh, in Brazil there's a huge movement for more young Black academics to to emerge, and I think it is coming. And uh, we managed to engage quite a few of them, but it was it was very difficult. And we, we actually formed two committees in the museum. One which is like a like a consultative consultative committee with the Black movement. So there's about thirty people. There's ninety nine percent Black people in our committee, and then there are consulti- uh, consulting consulting uh, council that we have and that makes decisions with us. But there's also a scientific committee. And this was really hard to put together. We had to go overseas and li- to make sure that 95% representation of that scientific committee were in the different fields of expertise were Afro-descendants, because that's, an ad- that's something that they're very adamant, and we've been protecting the space throughout the staff and the council and everything. But it's, so it's, it's a movement as well. It's, it's a movement that needs to emerge. I think we're talking about forming a movement all these initiatives are struggling with the same thing. The academia is struggling with the same thing. Is the need to strengthen each other. We are all trying to get these narratives to push these narratives. Doesn't matter uh, if you're uh, if you're working in this field or trying to push these narratives. But I I find that we all face huge difficulties and get deterred and then just say okay love, okay and giving up. And if we get together and form a community. Mm-hmm support maybe it gets easier to do the work you know uh i think like i'd like to think like a, in
1: the academic system is like bad here when it comes to diversity but there's recently a royal history society report that came out in the uk and i think there are like only two black women professors like throughout the whole entire uk and i was like okay well i have to put things in perspective i mean it's kind of like bad everywhere but i think it's important for mentors like and going back to what you said about allies i just want to say this real quick before the next question is i don't like the word ally i feel like it lets people not not anything against you but no it's okay you're fine um I don't like the word ally because it seems really soft. I like the term accomplice because if we're robbing banks, you're my accomplice. You're going to jail with me. That means you have to be called to actually do the work and people need to be held accountable to do that. Um, Like a while ago, people were wearing like safety pins to let people know that if you're in trouble, you can count on me. And then there would be things that would be happening and the people with safety pins would not be doing anything. And I'm like, what was the point of you wearing a safety pin? So it was more of like words matter, but also impact over intent. Like you see something, say something, do something in your community. And if it means a lot when white people show up. And you just have to like if you believe in the same things that we believe and you want us to achieve and you have to step up and do that work.
3: Okay, I have a statement and then I have a question. So my statement is: is that like you? So I was the only minority in my uh, undergraduate history degree, and I was the only minority in my high school. So I'm Asian American and then Native American. So it's like a very different mix. So I under completely understand like everything that you feel because I feel that way too because. Um, in our history program, we had all white professors and they were teaching uh, multiracial um, classes and things like that. So it's hard and a struggle to go through a class and be like, well, it's not being by some, te- taught by someone who's representing that community. So I totally get it. Mm-hmm. And then my question is, is that um, my site, so I'm at Whitesburg Preservation Trust and um, we're an agricultural historical site so we have a long history of dealing with um, minority groups coming into our site, but uh, currently where we're located now is not a minority at all. So how do you think is the best way to bring minority groups into a site that no longer is surrounded by that minority group?
1: I think try to take it to them. I think, like... Um, museums beyond borders beyond walls is like really important like what can you do in their community centers cuz here's the thing at the end of the day one of the things i always thought is white people will come to museums especially old white people you that's a demographic i feel like you don't need to like target because they look they're they're retired they don't have anything to do they're like oh mary let's go to the museum they're gonna come they're gonna come so really you have to target like your community right um, and i think it's making it accessible but asking what does accessibility look like for your specific site? And that's something that you need to ask yourself before you go into that community, I feel like.
0: So I think the the outreach uh, beyond walls is super important. But also, I think that's the one end of the spectrum. The one thing you have to do before everything is include communities in making, in museum making, in meaning making. So you have to make your museum their space. You invite them in. And then when we say it's not the token representation in a diversity exhibition, it's actually listening to them and ha- letting them be part of making your exhibition so that their voice is actually represented. So these things start opening the windows and making a difference for people to feel that, you know, that I own this space, this is my space, I want to be there. So, and it makes a huge difference because when people take ownership of these spaces, then it's their home and they go and they take people. So, it's relevance. Creating relevance depends on connecting with your communities and actually working for them. And that's a, a huge shift in museums as well, because museum professionals and academics of the older generation or whatever they, you know, that whatever dominates our practice, is uh, the, the practice is I know what the story is and I'm going to tell you. No, 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 no. You don't know. Actually, you know, you know one part of it. There's a huge other relevant part of it that you don't know. So making windows and creating doors for that, I think that's your departure point. And then when you get that and you get everybody in, then you take it back to the community.
5: Yeah. inside the Department of Interior which is a land agency oh, okay. and, and it's just to spill down to where it's very hard to have that voice, mm-hmm. hard to have that conversation yeah. um, and on the micro level I am superintendent of a park with a, in a town of 15,000 people. Mm-hmm. Natchez National Historical Park was the first national park in this country with the word slavery in its enabling legislation okay. and so trying to live it's part of what we are doing. And in 2017, we finally got new legislation that allows us to own land where the slave market was. Okay. So we're moving towards that development. Um, but a couple of challenges that I have faced. One is um, in working with the African American community, I'm, I'm a white woman. Like, white woman's going to come tell us. Mm-hmm. And that's not what I want to do, but mm-hmm. I have to, it's like the, the spray in your face is the vote down. Yeah. And then we can work together to mm-hmm. get something done. But a real challenge has been in trying to bring um, African-American professionals into that community, trying to hire them to be part of this conversation. The community is not seen as a safe space, and they don't want to live it. And okay. so it. And so I can get interns to come. I can do, take what steps I can mm-hmm. find to help move us in that. I was shocked yesterday to learn in the slavery education session that a course in African American history is required to graduate high school here in Philadelphia. Oh. Should've, should've,
0: wow. should have lived here. That's good. Exactly. <laughs> I, wow. Um, I, I think that you know, the, the, your, your situation is, is not completely unique. Uh, my, I, because I'm seen as a very different type of person in many different ways. I am from Brazil. <clears throat> in Brazil, I'm a privileged white person. In South Africa, I'm a person of color because I'm not exactly white. Uh, so I've been so many different things in different places where I've lived and I've experienced all these, all these uh, dynamics in a way. Um, but I think that when you have such difficulties to even get started, I think, so in this project, I see myself completely, I'm a facilitator. Because, and because we were lucky enough to push the agenda of the majority of the staff being black, and my director is black, the secretary of culture was black. So I am there, and I can say I am a facilitator. I'm not here speaking. I am, like, I am the museum therapist. Okay. So it's fine. I can have that role because I, we're really there to like facilitate the process. And uh, I think that my advice would be start on the dialogue you know when everything is so hard all this di- this conversations are so hard hard to break you have to get into dialogue with your communities and why do they not want to come to your community what's the, what's the sense of safety and unsafety get the try to bring those barriers down by using dialogue uh i don't want to sell our our uh, The coalition is very good at doing those things and i think that you guys worked with this through a lot of methodology and i'm saying this from observing the work that they do in terms of breaking these barriers and sometimes you have to spend a lot of time in these dialogues before you even start anything because through these dialogues you will build the trust Mm -hmm. that will then allow you to have a safe space that will create the environment that you need to start your project so sometimes before we start the project there's lots of groundwork that needs to be done
2: And just to follow up a little bit on that as well, I mean, going through this process and in in my role as kind of leading the project forward in, from a project management standpoint, exhibition, behind the scenes, nobody knows who I am, like I'm just kind of doing that, to be moved forward into, wait a second, she's representing this whole museum, and the whole mission of the museum is about black history, black stories, black voices. So it, it also takes a lot of internal work. I think, mm-hmm. in understanding and building trust in listening and genuinely listening. And that ha- I have had difficult moments because it's hard because I'm thinking, oh, I want to be able to do my, I want to do my job and I'm in this role, so I should do X, Y, and Z. But just as important, if not more important, is to act, is to step back and to listen to others. And it seems so kind of straightforward, listen, be understanding, but when you it really so critical and I think another thing that we also do as our whole team um, the approach that we take and we do a lot of work outside the museum um, being a national heritage area that's you know a lot of what we do so those partnerships with individuals who have influence is really important so you building that trust with maybe a a community leaders and bringing them into pieces of different projects or phases that normally they might not or people might not get to be part of we're doing another project with murals uh, right now outside of the museum and we worked with one of our uh, staff members who's from the community um, and he helped us kind of identify some people in the community who might want to say on who the artists get to be. Well, they've never been asked that before. That was like, oh, oh, you, oh, you, great, and now they're extremely invested in this project and they're using their channels to push it forward and, and helping with support I think that helps and then as, as we kind of talked about in the presentation as well is um really knowing being that internal work and understanding what your role is at what time and what that means not only in dialogue but just kind of going forward so um my title when i when the museum opened was just director and now i'm interim director because i it's very important to make it clear and and talk about it and say we're making this transition i love you know i love the job that I do, but it's so it's more important for our work and for this work to to step back yeah. when appropriate.
0: Yeah, exactly. I'm also there as a transient piece. Mm-hmm. I'm facilitating. I'm a planner, and I my 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 mission is really transient and is to get it going. <clears throat> I wanted to share a situation that I had when we were, start, when we were putting our team, especially our when we, first meeting we had with the scientific committee, and there's somebody in the scientific committee who's a fantastic historian, one of the only white historians, and she has a wealth of experience and super respected by her colleagues. But she raised her voice as being one of the small committee that was responsible and with all her other um, uh, black historian colleagues there saying, <clears throat> we historians and i have an experience of 30 years of working with the subject matter and i know what the narratives are i know what the stories are and i should be leading the planning of this project and we were like started like sitting there and understanding why do you think you should be leading the process so at the end of the day her point was that she had a lot of understanding about what that story meant because of her years of engagement with community, of listening to black communities and et cetera, et cetera. And it got so bad that at a certain point she wouldn't let go of this discourse and in front of the whole team, including the director of the museum, I said, you know what? I also have been working 15 years in this field. I have only worked with black related stories between South Africa and Brazil. And quite frankly, I don't care about what you think. You shouldn't care about what I think. It's not our opinions and our voices that are here. And it's about the, relic- the relinquishing of power. You know, actually, that was irrelevant. Her voice was irrelevant. Her understanding was irrelevant because she was not supposed to be leading. Her understanding was not what w- was going to be leading this project. And only be- <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't help it. And only at that moment that I actually sh- threw it on her face. And in the face of everybody, she took a step back and she said oh okay i understand you're right but it required like a violent act and confrontation like to be dead clear we don't care it's not your voice we want to hear so it needs to be sometimes spelled out i think sometimes that people who like study
1: our stories think that their research matters than my experience I've been Isn't black that? for 24 years. Yeah. That's not going to change anytime soon. Yeah and, to to yeah, and while I, I really like, I had this one professor, um, Kev- Keith Griffler amazing did two classes with him on the african diaspora and then the revolution he had us reading fanon i was like guys he's trying to radicalize us. does anybody realize this or am i the only one you know and i was like this is an amazing class you know but he still understood what it meant to be a white man teaching this class and it's important to remember like you may have studied my history for like 30 years I'm living it my grandparents have lived it you know what I'm saying so it's important to be respectful of it's like I hear these stories all the time about like white historians study indigenous history and then they like come into indigenous communities and indigenous people are like tired like can you like stop like the way that you're like talking about us as if like we're not here and then you come into our communities and then you use our history right like that's weird don't do that Thank you.
0: I think we're going to take one more question. It's now 9.30, we're way beyond. Thank you for staying. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I am gonna yeah. yeah. take it that forever, That's the
6: really thank guy. you. are a doula. I'm museum <laughs> Yeah. And this is not a relationship, this is oppression and this is abuse. Yeah. And there are people who are abused who may have feelings about their abuse. Yeah. Right? yeah. That doesn't mean yeah. that it's, it's not it's not um, abuse yeah. and or oppression and it means simply that they couldn't get food yeah. from anywhere else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and feelings come from who we have to rely on.
1: So so I, will, I will say something where my view is. I will say something really quick Because I know you guys probably leave um, But going to your point um, I'm blanking Wow um, So I do too. like understanding like that woman's tiredness I will say I 100% believe that white supremacy is a white person's problem because it was created by white people we're just fighting it because it affects us right we have to to survive in a way but I think it is also like white people should be fighting this too because I not only think white supremacy affects me but it affects white people there's this uh I can't remember the author, but he wrote a book about how white supremacy is literally killing white men, you know, and I was like, I mean, you kind of have to put it in a framework like that for sometimes white people to like understand that. But this is not just killing us. It's killing white people, too. And this is something that we need to understand is that white supremacy is not, you may think it's temporarily beneficial for you, but it is not, right? It takes a lot to hate somebody than it takes to love somebody and take care of someone. And also, uh, going to your point about consent is like yeah like even coercion is not consent anyways because uh that's what's happening with Sally Hemings like some people use well she was in Paris at one time and Jefferson took her to Paris and she could have left she's got kids back in America she doesn't speak French she doesn't have any money. You really think she's going to stay in Paris even though he gave her a chance to leave? Like, that's, that's the type of abuse that we talk about, and what a lot of people experience is financial abuse as well. So, and just, just a thought. I mean, if we want to mobilize and get work done, people of color can't just do this by themselves because these issues are not created by us.
0: And it's going to be tiring for every, It's going to get yeah. tiring for everybody yeah, once we yeah. get going. <laughs> yeah.
1: uh, the, the best way to put it is my last thing is Carl, Carl Culver, Kyle Cover from the Utah Jazz basketball team wrote this amazing op-ed, and he said, "Do I think I'm responsible for what my ancestors did?" He said, "No." He's like, "But do I have responsibility to fight it?" He said, "Yes." yes. That's all we're asking. Absolutely. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.